This is an echo from the past. A rerun, if you will. In this way, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. This one was released on the 11th of August 2014 and this is episode 5. And this episode features evolutionary ecologist Dan Warren. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome, this is episode number 5 of Natural Born Alchemist. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to talk with an evolutionary ecologist and a musician called Dan Warren. And Dan is also a member of the band Love Button. And you might recognize this because I played a Love Button song in a previous episode. So uh, let's talk to Dan. Okay, hi Dan Warren. Um, Thanks for uh, joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I guess I'm a musician and a scientist. Uh, uh, I used to, um, or still sometimes do, uh, sing and uh, play guitar for a band called Love Button. But I also do a bunch of solo stuff and uh, just uh, generally try and do um, music and science things, I guess. Yeah, that's how I found out about you. I was uh, listening a lot to Love Button. Right. Um, but I guess you weren't a scientist when you uh, you started Love Button. Uh, no, no, I was a, a waiter. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I've always been interested in science since I was a little kid. And uh, um, eventually in uh, 1997, I, I went back to school and, and started studying biology. Yeah. Yeah, and you can also tell that from some of the Love Button lyrics there. They're leaning towards science, right? It was it was pretty much always there, yeah, yeah. So your field, uh, exactly, what is it for the layman? I'm I'm kind of um, I, I I bounce back and forth. I do a lot of different stuff, but uh, uh, evolution, uh, evolutionary biology, ecology, and conservation biology. So so kind of working at the intersection of all three of those things. Um, yeah, initially I was very much an evolutionary biologist, and and in in graduate school I started kind of branching out more and more into ecology and conservation biology, and uh, I think it's a pretty even mix of all three of those right now. How difficult was it to to become a, an evolutionary biologist, uh, living in growing up in Oklahoma? <laughs> well, it was it was, yeah, it's it uh, that's that's actually a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the actual work, no harder than anywhere else. I didn't really get a lot of, I mean, I didn't get people throwing rotten eggs at me on the street or anything like that. But I did grow up in Oklahoma and actually for the very early part of my life until I was about 10 or so, I grew up fairly religious. And uh, I had a lot of things to unlearn. So uh, when I so when I started school, I actually I was not interested in being an evolutionary biologist. I actually kind of didn't. I didn't think I believed in evolution as a, the story for, for how life got here and how the diversity of life um, around us originated. But the thing is, like one, a big part of that, and I mean, I think it's a huge part of it for a whole lot of people, is I didn't really know anything about it. The education in evolutionary biology in Oklahoma is so absolutely freaking abysmally bad that I, I had no idea what I was even objecting to. And so when I when I actually sort of got into it and started to see um, the real science, both the evidence and to understand the actual ideas, 
it, it just made so much sense to me that I absolutely fell in love uh, uh, with the idea and also was just overwhelmed by the amount of evidence out there. So um, it, it was so so in answer to your question, there was there I had hurdles to overcome that someone growing up somewhere less, less religious might not have had to overcome. But those those hurdles were all just sort of in terms of misinformation, not any sort of societal pressure or anything like that. And so your family wasn't hadn't didn't have any problem with it. Uh, n- well, no. To, <laughs> the the ones I talked to regularly did have never had any sort of problem with it, but they were very atypical for uh, an Oklahoma family anyway. So I I grew up actually in a very politically liberal, literate um, sort of uh, a family, uh, which is pretty unusual given that environment. But um, uh, given that, I wouldn't really necessarily have the kind of problems a lot of people. And a lot of people I have, a lot of people would have, and a lot of people I know have had uh, with their families on the, that account. So, what what city in Oklahoma were you from? I primarily grew up in Oklahoma City and and in Norman. Um, I lived in a, a really small town called Maysville for uh, about a year, but mostly it was, it was OKC and Norman. Yeah, I uh, I did a foreign exchange in Oklahoma. Uh, oh, did you? Um, in uh, I was in Midwest City. Oh, right on. Beautiful place. Yep. No, that was, <laughs> sarc- that was sarcasm. Uh, uh. <laughs> no, it was actually uh, it was uh, very healthy for me to uh, go from uh, from Sweden to Oklahoma for a year when I was like 16, 17, because it, yeah, imagine. it was like an alien world <laughs> for me. It very much is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I've heard, yeah, I've heard, um, yeah, from people who sort of visit particularly parts of the southern U.S., but the rural U.S. from other countries. It just uh, that That's something you don't typically see in depictions of the United States. And uh, um, particularly, I mean, I think, I don't know how much of this you saw, but there's there's a lot of areas of the U.S. that uh, they don't look much like a first world country. Uh, and I think people outside the U.S. don't see that much of that. So, yeah. So I, I have some uh, friends here who they saw this. There's this documentary about the obesity epidemic in the U.S. It's called The Weight of the Nation. And it wasn't really even directly about poverty. But they, these are uh, some Australian friends. And uh, uh, they were talking to me about that. And so we had no idea there were parts of the U.S. that, that, that looked like that, that it looked like a third world country. And, uh, um, and it wasn't that they were even necessarily select, you know, intentionally selecting areas that look bad. It's just, they're parts of what the U S looks like that uh, the other, the rest of the world doesn't see. And people in the U S don't even know it's weird. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was lucky. I had got some uh, progressive friends when I was there and, and that's how I, they, one of them had a love button tape. That's how I, I discovered it. Uh, the um, I can't even pronounce it, but the stigmatobius te stigmatogobius <laughs> that yeah. one. What's th- what's that word mean, or is it just a made up word? No, it's actually so. It's a species of fish. Um, so the the fish that's on the cover of that uh, cassette tape that's that's actually a stigmatogobius. It's this this very cute little white sort of pearly white fish with black spots. Yeah. When um. um uh, when did you go to Australia? Was that when you were finished with your studies? Um, not really. So I, I, I only moved to Australia about a year and a half ago. I guess it's closing in on two years ago. So um, I don't know how, how much you know about the you know the academic system, but after you go through graduate school and you get your doctorate, um, 
uh, often before becoming a faculty member somewhere, before actually you know becoming a professor at a university, you do a position or a set of positions called a postdoc, which is short for postdoctoral research. So that means uh, basically you're just paid to be a full-time researcher um, and you don't usually teach and you don't usually have many other obligations other than just doing your research. So um, I've been very fortunate. I've, got, I've had a number of very nice postdocs and uh, it was basically a postdoc that brought me to Australia and now I've got a, a, a second postdoc here. So I just keep doing postdocs and postdocs and postdocs. And uh, um, I really like Australia a lot and, and my wife and I are trying to become citizens now. So... Um, yeah, we want to make it permanent. Well, from what I understand, you're, what you're studying uh, or what you're researching is... Uh, is uh, well, so I'm not a, a scientist, so it's, it's some, some words are a bit too much for me, but you, about this uh, phylogenetic trees. Uh, yeah, specifically, yes. I, I do a lot of stuff just... So a phylogenetic tree, that's just the... Uh, in, it's the inferred evolutionary relationships between species, basically. So uh, uh, essentially, uh, say, but, you know, between two species of fish, you know, what, what, what's the... Or actually a bunch of species of fish, what's the pattern of ancestry uh, uh, among them? Like, uh, uh, where did all the species come from? So I've done some stuff that's just about inferring phylogenies, but right now what I'm working on is is kind of integrating phylogenies into inferring species ecology from distributional data, which is quite esoteric. Um, it's one of those things that if you're in, if you're in my field is, is uh, I think, a fantastically exciting idea. And if you're not in my field, it uh, um, is quite difficult <laughs> to convey what's cool about it. <laughs> <laughs> but can you explain uh, a little what, what exactly what it, that means? Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> well, all right. So I, I do a lot of, uh, uh, there's a thing called uh, niche modeling, also sometimes called species distribution modeling, which is where, so are you familiar with the idea of an ecological niche? Yeah. Or niche? Yeah. So that's the idea. There's some set of conditions uh, in the cases that I'm usually worried about. Uh, we're talking about uh, what are called abiotic environmental conditions, which means things like temperature, precipitation, stuff like that. There's a set of conditions within which a species can uh, maintain a population that can be stable over long periods of time. So that's that set of conditions, the, the limits of its tolerances are called its niche. So we, for a whole bunch of reasons, we often want to know about uh, the ecological niche of species. Uh, but it's actually a really, really difficult thing to measure because, I mean, the experiment that's sort of obvious when you start thinking about the ecological niche is... You know, you take your species and you bring them in a lab and you raise them at different temperatures and you raise them at different precipitations and all that sort of stuff. And you see how well they do. But the thing is, a laboratory is a very artificial setting. Uh, some of the variables are very hard to manipulate. And, and actually, some of the species are very hard to keep. Actually, most species are very hard to keep in a laboratory setting with sample sizes adequate to do those sorts of experiments. And because you need hundreds or thousands of individuals to try and measure the niche that way. And when you start thinking about doing that with uh, rhinoceroses, you're just never going to freaking do that. That's just not possible. So we need other ways to figure out species ecological tolerances. So one thing we do know about a whole bunch of species, even if we know nothing else, is we know where we've seen them before. So in this day and age, we've got, you know, GPS uh, um, uh, coordinates down to a very fine scale. So we know uh, hundreds of observations of where we've seen a rhinoceros, right? 
And we also have this sort of global distributions of uh, uh, um, measurements for those environmental variables because we got weather stations everywhere. So if we know what the temperature is in a certain place and we know that we've seen a rhinoceros there, then we can infer that a rhinoceros can be happy for at least a while in that sort of temperature. And if we have enough of that sort of data, we can try to infer the limits of what uh, that species can tolerate and so make an estimate of the species niche just from distributional data, which is phenomenally powerful because we can do that for species that we cannot possibly take into a lab. But it's also phenomenally problematic because the data is extremely noisy. There's all sorts of issues with inferring, with making those sorts of inferences from that sort of data. So it's a statistically extremely difficult thing to do. What we really need is to figure out ways to incorporate um, different sources of information into that process to make up for some of the deficiencies in the data. And, and essentially the idea I'm working on is that phylogenies, the relationships between species can tell us something about their ecological tolerances. So um, um, basically if we know how those tolerances evolved, we might know, some, it might actually help us to infer the tolerances themselves, if that makes sense. So the, the, the end goal here is to learn more about the evolution of the niche, but also to make uh, better estimates of the niche so that we can um, plan reserves to, let's say, um, deal with the effects of climate change or to infer the niche better so we can predict which species will invade uh, an area that they're not native to. So there's all these actually real world conservation endpoints for which better models are going to be extremely valuable. Um, but uh, uh, we have to figure out how to make those and that's what I'm trying to do. And it's uh, uh, it's uh, the kind of research that takes uh, many years? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, well, like a lot of things, it's, there's always, it's incremental improvement. So I've, I've been working on, on niche modeling methods for niche modeling and doing sort of actual applied studies for conservation planning for uh, about eight years now, I guess. Um, but every time you figure out a way to improve it, you immediately think of something else you could do that's even better. And so it's it's just sort of constantly improving and improving and improving. And, and, and this, because it's a very hot field now, there are thousands of people doing this stuff, these methods have become massively better in the past decade. And um, uh, I've played a small part in that, but other people have played much larger parts in that. But I think, so if I and my collaborators can get this type of method working, it will be a just a, a substantial leap forward, not like a little incremental step. It will be, I think, potentially... Um, a, a quite a large jump forward in our ability to do this sort of modeling. Uh, one thing I, I, I think is very interesting is that many things that maybe a hundred years ago were, were looked at as as magical or, or occult has resurfaced now in science. For instance, many indigenous cultures always talk about a mother tree. There's like... Every every forest has a certain tree that's in charge of all the other trees, and uh, but now I, I recently saw a documentary about some scientists who, who discovered that uh, all the trees are connected underground, and and there is indeed if you cut down a certain tree, it, it makes it worse for the other trees. Huh, that's 
That's interesting. I don't, yeah, I don't know much about that. I mean, if, if you just mean having a bigger ecological impact, I mean, I can certainly see that. There are sort of what we call keystone species, um, uh, which is kind of an old and I think a little bit of an outdated concept. But the general idea is something like that. There are some species that if you take them out of a local community, they have very large effects um, kind of uh, uh, um, on other species. And there are other species that are, you know, not... Not that they're not important, but they don't have that large an impact. Yeah. In the last few years, there's been many interesting documentaries I've seen on on just on plants, and my view on them is more like I look at animals now because they 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 move, and they like talk to each other, and uh, if uh, when you watch them in time lapse, it's quite amazing how how they move around and do things. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh it, yeah, it, it's very cool. Yeah, there's some really cool work showing um, uh, like jungle vines when they sort of first come out of the floor. The basically when they first sort of come up out of the forest floor, the, you know, if you're a, if you're a vine, you need something to climb. Somehow they they sort of find the things near them that are best to climb, and they grow towards those. And that's absolutely fantastic. It's not something you would expect from a plant, the way you see plants every day. But if you kind of look at them over enough long enough time scale, they actually have behavior which is a really interesting thing yeah and the thing that they like kill off other plants or take over areas and uh, so it's just like animals and territories so <laughs> yeah yeah i so actually i got uh one of my advisors when i was an undergrad basically said if if you can if if you yeah, basically, if you can figure out a way to work on plants instead of work on animals, work on plants. Because there's so much more stuff done on animals. There's so much more stuff left to do on plants. And plants are actually much easier to do real, massive, replicated experiments with uh, that you couldn't possibly do in animals. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of really cool stuff in plants. And there's a whole bunch more to do. But I just like, I like fish so much that I just kind of keep going back to fish. <laughs> Do you, do you eat fish? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so, so why 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 fish? Why did you start liking fish? I honestly don't know. I just uh, I I just find them really really interesting. I, there's something about them that just appeals to me, and I just kind of don't get tired of, of of looking at them. But also, um, so I do some work on coral reef fish, and that has the massive benefit that when you get to when you when you go out to do your work, you go out to you know, some beautiful place in the tropics and you dive for weeks at a time. And uh, so the, the working conditions are very, very nice. Fish are, in a lot of ways, uh, particularly reef fish, are very inconvenient to work on because they're underwater. And uh, um, they only live in certain areas of the world that I typically don't live in. So you have to go to them instead of sort of having them right outside your front door. But uh, they, they do... Yeah, they, they do just interest me. They keep me really kind of excited about it. And my work on fish is actually not the stuff that other people know me for, you know. It's in science. It's not it's not the stuff that's going to make my career or break my career. But it's the stuff that sort of keeps me the most engaged and the most interested. So, And, and I've uh, there's been many cases now of uh, when it comes to... Uh, especially in China where there's some factories who are making a lot of pollution and they've discovered here outside Scandinavia that the fish have changed sex. Uh, yes. Have you heard about this? 
Yes, that's a very it's a it's a very big issue for a whole bunch of species, uh, but particularly fish. So there are chemicals, um, and just a broad class of chemicals. Uh, this is not my field, so I'm uh, uh, just going on my own sort of vague understanding here, called uh, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals, EDCs. Um, and part of what they can do is actually alter um, sex determination in fish. And uh, you can end up, you know, you can end up with a you know stream full of fish that's all female or something like that. And then obviously that's not something that is over the long term viable. You're going to run out of fish pretty fast. Um, yeah, and it's one of those things that that's... So some of the stuff we do to the world that, that fucks things up is... Some of those things are very obvious. You can look outside and see them very quickly. That's one of those things that's not obvious. Because, you, you know, fish don't usually have very visible external genitalia. You have to go out and look really hard to know that that's even happening. And so it, it does definitely make you wonder... Uh, what other stuff we're really screwing up in the world that we just can't see yet? Um, yeah, it's, it's also easier to fundraise to save a panda than to save a fish. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No one, yeah. It's really hard to get people excited about a fish. Although even a fish, I think it's easier to get excited about than a plant or an insect or something yeah. like that, unless they're very charismatic. I, yeah, that's true. Um, to get back to a bit to the love button. Um, how, because um, uh, you you uh, you did an album recently together. You you like broke up and then joined, went back together, or how did that happen? Yeah, we we never really broke up. Like I just I went to school. I went I went to university, and then we kind of stopped playing shows very much. And then I moved away um, to uh, uh, to to Florida at first, um, and then. After four or five years, you know, uh, after we last played, I was just coming back to town and I was just like, hey, actually, I don't remember if I, if I initially suggested it or if Evan or Adrian did. Anyway, one of us eventually just said, hey, we should play a show while I'm back in town. Uh, and we did that. And it was it was funny because it was it was one of the biggest shows we'd ever played. Actually, probably the biggest show we ever played where we were headlining is really weird. We got somehow much better known after four or five years of not playing um, <laughs> and so we yeah we it, it was uh, much more successful than we, we expected it to be and so we kept doing that every just every year or two I mean not like reunion shows exactly or anything like that but you know we'll just um yeah every couple of years when I'm in town we'll go and play a show and it's just it's it's a ton of fun and I really like doing it that way and and we'll I'm sure we'll do another few in the future we'll see but um as for the album um we initially recorded the entire album uh the year I, I moved from undergrad in florida to grad school in california so i was in oklahoma for the summer and we just you know grabbed some mics and started recording um but then i never mixed that album and the more i when i went back to it there were some sort of problems with the recording process that that meant it would never really sound all that great so um so when i got my first postdoc it was in austin texas which is only about a six hour drive from oklahoma and uh basically i i had my own home studio and had some much better quality equipment then 
And so I just uh, um, had the guys come down and we spent, I don't know, it was about a week, uh, just about a week, just recording, recording, recording all day, every day. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then it took, what, four years to mix it. Um, three years. No, four. Yeah, about three or four. Anyway, um, yeah, so we spent like a week recording it and I spent three or four years mixing it. And then we just put it out uh, just a while back, last year, I guess. But it's it's funny because those are, none of the songs on there are new. Uh, the last album we put out was like two years before we stopped playing together. So we had a whole, we probably had two whole new albums worth of songs that we had never recorded. Um, and we just kind of, it was really good to go back. And so some of our best songs by my estimation, but also by uh, a lot of the fans' estimation, were in that set that had never been recorded. And so uh, it was very nice to go back and actually get a, a decent sounding recording of all that stuff. It was, uh, uh, it was just a very satisfying thing to have done, uh, even though it's probably 10 years later than it should have been. <laughs> and uh, and it's also amazing to me, uh, not only Love Button, but there's also many other bands that uh, are... Uh, are very underground or f not not that known and then when you listen to the radio you're like you're thinking like what the hell <laughs> how how can these people be on the radio and uh, uh so it's, it's, it's but also i'm thinking well it might be hard for the bands themselves but in a way maybe because these underground bands that are good are good because they might not be on the radio because there's a lot of uh you know, vultures and things happening when uh, some, I don't know, it's like a double-edged sword. You have to <laughs> yeah, go either yeah. path, I guess. Right, right. One I one would like, like to make a living at it, though. So, I mean, I love science. I really do. It's the best job I ever had. But if I was given an option of a career in music versus a career in science, I'd take a career in music if it actually had a regular, decent paycheck associated with it. But it, it, it rarely does for almost anybody, it seems. So, uh, um, yeah, science is uh, uh, a pretty awesome backup plan. But uh, but that's the thing. It's like I, I what you're saying about, you know, bands that are successful or so bands that are good, not necessarily being successful. Bands are successful, not necessarily being good. That was kind of what made me stop doing it as trying to do it for a living. Basically, I was just I was very tired of investing so much of myself into a process that would never support me which is not to say that was the only reason I was doing music I, I kind of can't not do music but uh, at some point I wanted to stop being a waiter so I was like I need a career where um, I'm actually rewarded for my hard work <laughs> and and in a sense it was actually tremendously liberating to sort of give up on music as a career because that meant I could do really um, weird things that I wouldn't necessarily have done if I was trying to uh, um, make a paycheck. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. You you can do you can be more free. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The odd thing is some of the weirdest stuff I've done, the stuff I probably wouldn't have ever done if I was trying to do music uh, professionally or I mean as a career. Uh, those have actually been some of the most successful things. So I may just be, I may just be utterly wrong in uh, what people will accept, 
musically. Um, maybe I should just try to be weirder. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, probably the best thing is just to do what you want. And then if people like it, they like it. But I, I did see uh, Love Button perform live when I was in Oklahoma. Uh, I cannot remember where it was, but I, I do remember that it was a, a, there was not many people there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like one of our old shows, all right. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's the uh, Oklahoma, it's, uh, it's, it's, so I've lived in a bunch of different places now. I've lived in places where there was a, where there were uh, um, people going out to see bands a lot, but the bands weren't very good. Um, but uh, Norman, Oklahoma, particularly, is the that's the place where like I'm just amazed at how high the quality of the music is and how few people are actually out there supporting it. I mean, it's just it's it's amazing how how little people realize they've got there because. We would go to play, yeah, I don't know, we would go to play um, cities where we get much more of a turnout and stuff like that, even for people who didn't know us. Um, but And, and the, the local bands that we would end up playing with often didn't seem up to the quality of uh, people who back home in Norman were were playing to empty rooms, you know? Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about that area that makes it such a great place for particularly very odd bands I mean, there's some really amazingly strange stuff that that came out of there um and you you could not have found a place you could not have found less fertile soil for for that's for the sort of awesome music that was coming out of there um yeah but yeah i don't know maybe it's the the devil's music that's why it could be could be <laughs> i i think there's a there's a level of it's funny so Growing up in a kind of culturally uh, oppressive place like that, um, people who so so like if, if you grew up in you know Berkeley, California, or something like that, and you're you know you're you're kind of weird, and you know maybe you smoke pot and have long hair, or maybe you're just you're just odd and arty, or maybe something like that. You don't catch a lot of shit for it because you're in Berkeley, but if you grow up like that and that's just who you are in a place like Oklahoma you grow up having to defend who you are constantly and I, th I feel like it's almost like you have you ever you know what a rock tumbler is where you put like a a rock in and you spin it around with some sand for a long time and it kind of polishes it and the rock that initially looked very rough and ugly comes out looking like a jewel or something I feel like uh, a kind of repressive place for weird people it kind of has that effect where it, it I, I feel like it kind of it puts a, it puts a level of polish on your weirdness or creativity that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were in a more supportive environment. So um, yeah. Um, so in a sense, I'm I'm, I'm quite uh, uh, glad to have had that experience of growing up that way. But I, I I wish we could have gotten out and played some places that would have been um, a, little, a little better in terms of uh, finding an audience that that uh, uh was really into us which is not to say we didn't we have we have a a very loyal and very awesome uh, uh crowd in oklahoma but uh you know bigger is always better as far as that's concerned yeah and maybe <laughs> that's why the internet is good because then you can have people anywhere in the world maybe not see you live but they can listen to it and yeah uh, 
And but they, the funny thing is, like, uh, so going back to when we got back together and started playing, like, now pretty much any time we go and play a show in Oklahoma, we are playing those big rooms still, but they're actually full now, which is weird, but it's awesome. Because, I, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's always more fun to play a, a show that's full of, of uh, happy, screaming people. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really weird that we went from playing regularly to mostly empty rooms to now playing very irregularly to very full rooms yeah mm. yeah because i i had uh, for many years i just had that uh, stigma what do you call it stigmatobius stigmatobius yeah. yeah i only had that tape and i don't know how many people who because when i had it when i played it everybody who heard it wanted me to copy it uh, so I, I don't know how many copies I've made of it. So I'm sure there's many people all over Europe <laughs> with a copy. It That's was awesome. it, this was pre MP3, uh, so um, it's easier now. <laughs> but <laughs> right, right. And I'm all I'm. I'm honestly. I think I think independent musicians have very little. They they only have things to gain from from people copying their stuff. Like I, I don't know. I, yeah. I know some people get very uptight about people copying our music. I just, especially now that I'm not trying to do it for a living, I just want it to be heard. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I've given away uh, all of my last, I don't know, four or five albums that I did for free. I have them for sale as well, but I've put, I've put stuff out there for people to just download. Because uh, I'd rather someone, if paying for it is an issue i would rather someone hear it than not hear it i buy so much more music now than i used to and a lot of that is because i first hear it through friends passing mp3s back and forth and stuff like that like i i i i think my music budget now is probably five times what it was back before mp3s were readily available it's just because i hear so much more new stuff that appeals to me and when i like something i try to buy it you know um yeah so yeah so so i think getting all up in arms about that sort of stuff is just it's 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 a phenomenal waste of effort and it's also it's just utterly pointless because i don't think they've ever managed to slow anybody down in terms of uh getting getting whatever pirated content they want it's just completely and utterly ineffective um yeah, and it, just the amount of resources they stick it, they 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 spend fighting a war they can't win and shouldn't even really be fighting. It's, it's just astonishing. So uh, let's listen to one of your solo songs, and uh, I picked uh, the first one is the most fitting, I guess. It's called the Scientist. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have anything to say about it? Um, no. So just the, I this song is a, is not autobiographical in any real sense uh i always worry that people will think that because it's actually it's about this scientist who's very unhappy with his life and his work and his his relationship and that's that's not me at all that that to me is so i i wrote that album most of them while i was in graduate school and uh it's a fairly depressing album in a lot of spots um but particularly that song and to me, that was a that was that I wrote that song kind of as a warning to myself um, about basically how 
shit. So like grad school is very stressful. Being a scientist, is, there's a lot of stress. Uh, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, things you have to deal with. A lot of just pressure to perform and all that sort of stuff. And and the thing that makes all of that very bearable is that I mainly do stuff that I enjoy. And I'm just sort of try to keep it in an area where I'm always happy with what I'm doing. And this is just kind of almost a cautionary tale to myself of what it could be like if I didn't do that. If I sort of let it become a job instead of something that actually inspires me. The scientist rubs his weary eyes And says, seriously, I just realized That I used to be employed Doing things that I enjoy But nowadays I just do things Back when I first started out I only worked on things I cared about Now I take the checks And I just do whatever's next Everything's alright When you get down to it I suppose everything's alright The drive home gets longer every day But there's no real hurry anyway Cause home is just a place Where all the children's faces Look a bit too much like his best the history of science it uh, it has a tendency sometimes to i don't know how it is today you probably know better uh, to work against itself like 
some scientists 10 years ago, they put down these laws. And then it's very hard if some new scientists discover that they are wrong. And that's that's very difficult because some uh, whole careers of some scientists are built on these ideas. And then if they're wrong, their whole careers are ruined. You know? <laughs> well, so I think that that's something you hear a lot. I think it's vastly overstated, actually. So it's not necessarily that people are worried about their careers being ruined if they're proved wrong. It's that people hate being proved wrong, actually. And they're just and they, they can be unscientific and they can be giant dicks about it, to be honest. I mean, I think it, there, there is an inertia to um, to scientific progress. And it's it, to some extent, that's a good thing because you don't want to go chasing every new idea um, and, and giving it the full weight of, uh, you know, of a scientific theory or anything like that. You, you, you need to pile up enough evidence to overturn an idea that has massive explanatory power right you need to it takes a while to prove that a new idea is actually better but people there is this inertia also just because people they they cling to ideas they understand or the ideas that have made them famous or whatever and it's it, it's not that they would be fired if someone proves them wrong or ostracized or anything like that it's just that they don't want to be proved wrong because they liked being right and uh, it's uh, it's just not as institutionalized as I think a lot of people think it is. And it's not as uh, it's not as the, the consequences of being proved wrong in science. I mean, science is about proving stuff wrong. That's literally its greatest strength is that we keep trying to prove shit wrong. Um, and so it's not actually it's not a career ending thing to be proved wrong. I'm actually I've just submitted a paper it's in review right now we'll see how it works out where i basically take apart um and it not, i don't necessarily prove wrong but i really very severely criticize a huge chunk of my own work um because i i've just sort of like the more i think about it the more this stuff isn't quite right and the <laughs> Basically, there's this sort of type of analysis that, that I and a couple of other people invented. And uh, the more I thought about them, and it's been used by hundreds of other scientists. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know what, there's, it's not that it doesn't work, it's that it doesn't mean what we've been acting like it means. And so I kind of felt like, you know what, it's kind of morally incumbent upon me to say to the rest of the world, hey, we actually should stop treating this as though it means this when in fact it means that. You know what I mean? And so it's something where I actually have a substantial amount of trepidation. There might be people who, be people who are legitimately pissed off at me because, um, because, because of that, that paper. But at the same time, if someone's going to blow up a chunk of my work, I'd like to be the one who does it, actually. Because I think that's the right thing for a scientist to do. So, which is, yeah, there, there are people who are, so there's a, a, I don't know how common this term is outside of science. There are people who are what, what we call turfy. You know, yeah, so as in like, this is my turf, that's your turf. You know what I mean? So they're very def defensive of their little areas and they're like, yeah, don't everyone, you know, basically they're, they, they, um, they're doing sort of exactly what you said. They're kind of, preventing the the the, uh, uh, the further progress of science um, because they don't want other people um, working on their stuff or taking ideas that they might have eventually worked on. Um, 
but that and that sort of defensiveness, I think those are those to me are those are the signs of a bad scientist. Honestly, I don't care how clever you are or how great your greatest idea is. If you are willing to defend that against over like uh, um, overwhelming evidence just because it's something you're personally invested in, that's a recipe for doing bad science. Yeah, that's true. And also, it seems also that uh, even though science knows more and more about all the things it studies, uh, it's all is it, it. The more it discovers, it also seems the more they discover they don't know. So the the it's almost that it's a a, a losing battle because each for each dis each discovery there's 10 more questions that wasn't existing before well i would i would say that's that's actually the best part about it is uh we're not at least in biology we're not anywhere close to understanding everything and probably a good chunk of what we think right now is just absolutely not really wrong but the fun that's the fun thing is like figuring out what's wrong and making it better and stuff and if you've got more questions well that's cool because you've got more things to investigate like I don't think, I I don't think most scientists think that we're ever going to solve everything, or that, well I I don't think most good scientists even think that they're going to answer anything definitively. There's always the possibility someone will come along with more evidence, better tools, better analyses, something like that. And overturn what you're going to do. And that's the beauty of the process. And for me, if you're not okay with that or not even excited for that prospect, uh, you shouldn't be doing it. I recently listened to uh, actually another podcast. There was a guy called uh, Gad Saad or Sad or something. And he's, uh, he's, uh, he does evolutionary uh, behavioral science. So do you think uh, this... the Evolution theory can be put on everything in the world, you know, culture and uh, uh, behavior and plants and animals and mountains. <laughs> mountains, no. Well, uh, no, not, not, not. So the thing is, um, so for a lot of that, yes. Um, I, I think uh, there's... There are always a lot of caveats um, when you're talking about evolution and behavior, because behavior can be very, very plastic, very flexible, um, particularly when you're talking about human behavior. Um, there, we're not the only cultural species, the only species that has cultural transmission. There are uh, uh, quite a few species that do that sort of thing. But um, we do a lot of cultural transmission. So there's a lot of stuff out there now where people are trying to explain things in human society or human behavior using natural selection directly and there's there's there is some value to that idea that we should try to understand our evolutionary biases and stuff like that but there's also so many so much of that work is just honestly it's just crap it's just people making up stories um it's yeah so are you familiar with uh, Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories? No, I know the author, but not Yeah, the... okay. So uh, I, think that, I think that was Rudyard Kipling. Let me, let me check that out before I, I make a fool of myself. Uh, uh, I think it was Kipling. Yeah, Rudyard Kipling. Okay. Um, 
so they, these were stories that, that he had just made up. These just silly stories about like how the leopards got its spots and how the elephant got its trunk and things like that. Um, so there's this tendency uh, among some biologists and particular people doing uh, evolutionary psychology right now to tell what we in evolutionary biology call just so stories which is you look at some behavior and you come up with some story of how natural selection could have favored that behavior. And then you act as if that story is evidence that that behavior exists for that evolutionary purpose, right? But the thing is, you've applied no evidence. You've, you've tested nothing. You've just created a story that attaches this idea to that idea. So what you've generated there is a hypothesis, but they, but you're treating it as a conclusion, um, and that's that's tremendously problematic. That's actually that's where the science should start, not where it should stop. So um, unless you can think of a way to test those ideas, those ideas are every bit as good as how the elephant got its trunk or how the you know uh, leopard got its spots in terms of explaining the natural world. Like okay, it's a cool idea, um, and even if it makes sense you haven't actually proven it. So um, evolutionary psychology is full of a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and as a result, there's actually a big backlash against evolutionary psychology. Um, a lot of people think evo-psych is complete bullshit, um, but I, I think the backlash goes too far as well. So some people are willing to say that um, human beings are so cultural that's um and and so plastic and so smart and so all that that um that that an evolutionary explanation like like whatever our natural background is doesn't have an effect on our actual behavior that we just need cultural explanations for everything i think that's every bit as dumb uh, honestly because we do have a history we we have we have impulses to to you know eat and have sex and acquire possessions and and have specific social behaviors and things like that all that stuff comes from somewhere it's stuff we actually share with other species a lot of it um and understanding where it comes from might be quite illuminating so i think evolutionary psychology is um potentially a very useful and fascinating field i think the current state of the field is pretty is pretty dire for the most part um, but but on to the rest of your question. Yeah, we use natural selection. We use the idea of evolution by natural selection to uh, to study animal behavior. Actually, that's the first thing I wanted. I got really interested in in biology was using uh, um, was understanding the evolution of behaviors. I don't do very much of that stuff now, but uh, that was actually my first interest in biology, and it's that stuff is really amazing. There's some absolutely fantastic stuff out there on that, and I actually know people who are doing language evolution stuff and sorry i had to take a drink here <clears throat> i'm getting a horse um using the this sort of the same uh, some of the same ideas or similar ideas to what we do in uh, evolutionary biology to understand language evolution makes perfect sense because the processes are actually somewhat similar not identical but similar so when Let's say, so if you get if you have a species of bird and it flies over to another island where there's not going to be exchange of genes, then those two, two populations of birds will diverge and eventually they'll become so different that they're different species, right? 
So the same thing can happen when you have languages dispersing. So if you like in Polynesia, you have people from one island dispersing to another island. And if they don't talk to each other for four or five hundred years, their languages will become quite different. And you can actually use fairly similar uh, uh, ideas to the evolutionary. I mean, so we have all these this sort of statistical processes, these sort of methods of analysis, these ways of thought we've developed for thinking about animal populations. You can actually use them, sorry, genes in animal populations. You can use those similar ideas to study words, phrases, and language uh, but, but between human populations. And that analogy um, really, really works um, because the processes themselves are actually quite similar. Not identical, and it's really, really important when you're talking about analogies in science to, to keep in mind where these the analogies break down. So they're not identical. You can't use exactly the same processes to understand them, but there's a lot of insight from evolutionary biology that can be applied to culture and language. In terms of mountains, um, there I think the only similarity is you've got things changing over time, which is evolution in the broad sense of the definition of the word, but not, not really akin to, to evolution by natural selection or speciation or the process of the generate biodiversity. So. Is there like an average time frame for a, a, uh, an evolution to take place? Like for, for if you take those birds, for example, they go to another island and it's become different. How long does that take roughly? <laughs> yeah. So this is actually one of the, uh, so how long it takes for them to become different species is uh, it can be highly variable and it also depends on what you mean by things being different species. And that, that's one of those, this is one of those things where, and you run across these quite often in biology, um, the way we talk about things being different species just on a day-to-day -day basis, <clears throat> I mean, non-scientists, you know, just we talk about a robin is different from a sparrow. Um, that's a different thing from two closely related species. So often we get to these points where we, we have to answer the question of whether these two birds who look almost identical are different species or not. And it's often not at all trivial to make that distinction. And it boils down to what you mean by things being two different species. Is it enough for them to look different? Is it enough for them to not being able to breed with each other? Or if they breed with each other, is it enough if their babies aren't that good? Um, is, is it enough that they have be genetically distinct from each other, even if they look identical and can interbreed? There, there's all these sorts of things like, what level of divergence between two populations do you count as being species? And, and obviously, how long it takes for a species to become distinct is is going to be completely affected by what you mean for two species to be distinct, right? So that that's one thing. The other thing is that rates of evolution we now know can be incredibly variable. And this is one of those things that um, it's been known, I think, in, in scientific circles for decades now, but it really hasn't seeped out into the popular consciousness. So I think the general... Um, idea um, in the 19th, certainly, uh, but I think throughout most of the 20th century, at least the first 70 years, um, 
was that natural selection and evolution by natural selection was a process that was so slow that you couldn't go outside and observe it happening. That it, it was something you really would have to look at hundreds of generations to see. You could do it with fruit flies in a lab because fruit flies have a really short generation time and stuff like that. But in terms of most animal populations, I think the idea, the dominant idea certainly was that it was so slow you couldn't see it. But then people went out and started just, it's like, oh, screw it, let's, let's go look for it anyway. Um, and it turns out the rates of evolution in natural populations, evolution by natural selection, are way, way faster than we thought they were. Um, and so you can go out, even in Darwin's finches, there's this amazing work people have been doing for decades, watching populations of Darwin's finches, where you can actually document the, uh, uh, the process of natural selection in terms of who dies and who gets to eat and who doesn't, uh, and the effects in terms of changes in uh, the distributions of beak sizes and other morphological characters and changes in, in the distribution of, of genes in populations. So you can see the whole process going on year after year after year. And you can see the process actually respond to things like El Nino events and things like that. So we used to think that you couldn't do that. And now once people have started to look, we look out in the real world, we say, oh, crap, natural selection is going really, really fast. Um, and evolution is happening really, really fast. Uh, and, and so if that's what you mean by evolution, how long does it take? Uh, well, then the answer is it's happening right now. Like you just, you, you have to go out and look close enough and look hard enough, but you can see it happening right now. The real question became actually after some of that work came out, if evolution in natural populations right now is happening so quickly, why is it so comparatively slow in the fossil record? And the answer to that seems to be, for the most part, evolution is going real fast, but it keeps changing direction. So what's happening in summer and what's happening in winter are very different. What's happening in El Nino year and what's happening in La Nina year are very, very different. And so you can have evolution selecting for larger beak sizes this year and smaller beak sizes next year or, or, or you know, whatever morphological character you, you choose to select. So basically you can have constant change going really fast, but a long-term average change is in fact uh, uh, very slow, um, which is a really fascinating thing. It just, it means that the, the, the evolution we see... Uh, <clears throat> over long periods of time in the fossil record, stuff like that, is just the average behavior, possibly, of a process that's happening much, much faster. Mm. As far as natural selection, there's also, uh, looking at the human race, there's a bit of a moral dilemma, or, or uh, whereas, are we, are, are we going against this natural selection when we are, you know, people who, if we lived 10,000 years ago, they would not have survived but we we are making sure they are surviving and even breathing and uh, it's almost you know so if you talk about people about this you you uh, they get images of hitler in their <laughs> in their minds yeah but it, it, it begins to sound uh, like you just yeah. yeah but still it's it's uh, the n nature works like that uh, and we and, and we are part of nature so I've always had this dilemma if are we, sh should we or should we, I mean, I understand why we are because we have empathy, but uh, are we doing ourselves a disservice a thousand years from now? Uh, you know, I, 
possibly. I mean, it's, it's yeah. So, I mean, I think one part of that is uh, there's this thing called the naturalist fallacy, uh, um, which is just the, the, the fallacy is the idea that because something's natural, it's necessarily good. Nature can be pretty fucking vile. It really can, um, which is part of what makes it interesting. I mean, there, there are things in nature that are, that are that are quite terrible, and there's, yeah. This so this is one of those things that, that comes up quite often uh, in, in animal behavior and in in evolutionary psychology and stuff like that. And so there, actually, you can write up a mathematical model that will demonstrate under what conditions it's um, it's under what conditions it's beneficial for your own fitness to commit rape, so to have sex with a a, a female that's not willing and. It actually happens in nature all the time, like ducks particularly. Ducks are just, some species of ducks are just kind of chronic rapists. They're just rape, this is a rape, rape, rape. It's terrible. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it is that way because male ducks who raped female ducks had a lot of babies. Um, and so it was, to whatever extent that um, behavior was genetic, it was, it was selected for. That's a very different thing from saying that rape is okay, but it can be natural and still be a fucking terrible idea. And that's actually, that's really, really common in nature. There's all these things, like absolutely horrifying things that, that, that come out of natural selection that are selected for. They're advantageous in terms of propagating the genes that produce those behaviors or phenotypes. And yet from any sort of moral standpoint, they're absolutely horrible. So the naturalist fallacy is, is this idea that something is good because it's natural. And it's pretty much always put forth by people who are very selective in what parts of nature they're looking at. You know what I mean? So like, you're like, oh, well, we should do this because it's natural. Well, you know, there's actually all sorts, like we should, you know, we should, we should, Work like ants. We should have a, you know, have a queen and everybody should just work for the, the, the queen and we should all do this because ants do it and ants are doing okay. So this must be the natural order of things. Well, yeah, that's because you picked ants because you wanted for some reason for there to be a queen. If you had picked, if you had picked cattle egrets, you might have instead said, well, maybe we should kill our siblings when we're young uh, <laughs> so that we can get more food at the dinner table, which is what they do. Um... And again, it's natural, but it's, I think most people would agree it's not probably the right way to grow up, murdering your own siblings. Yeah. So on, on to your question about uh, uh, natural selection. We are, we're not immune to natural selection anymore. Uh, we still have uh, congenital birth defects and stuff like that, that even if they don't kill you, they make it harder for you to get laid and have children when you're older. Sorry to be a little crass, but uh, um so as long as that stuff is going on, we still do have natural selection to some extent, but, but certainly we've relaxed selection on things like poor eyesight um, or bad teeth or whatever. We can deal with those things now. Um, and so it's, it's actually, it's quite possible we may acquire more genetic variation or not acquire more, but eliminate less uh, deleterious, which is to say negative, bad for you, uh, genetic variation in future generations um, with respect to those things. Um, and certainly, I guess that, that, that could be, if modern technology was suddenly to disappear, 
and we no longer had eyeglasses or toothpaste or anything like that, it's possible we could have a few generations uh, of people having a really bad time because they suddenly had a bunch of uh, nasty health problems that, that, that uh, um, uh, used to not be subject to selection but now are. But, I don't know. Uh, I think if that happens, honestly, what will happen is you'll have a lot of selection really fast. And uh, uh, we'll go right, we, we, we won't lose the ability to grow good teeth or have good eyesight uh, completely. And as long as it's still there, um, it'll be selective for it. It'll come back if we actually need it. But for now, I'm totally going to get my teeth fixed and wear glasses. So, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Idiocracy? Oh yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that that's probably more a realistic future. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's certainly more of a concern. Yeah. I mean I think I, I'm not that worried about us becoming, you know, again, needing more people needing glasses or more people needing to get their teeth fixed. But uh I am worried about people getting dumber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, uh, well, let's finish with uh, one more song. It's also from the same album, I think. But it's uh, also one I like a lot, which is A Clockwork Family. <laughs> or or Clockwork Family. Um, anything to say about this one? Yeah, I just... So that's just... Yeah, it's, it's, it's this cute song about a, a little kid growing up in a less than perfect uh, uh, home life and just picturing replacing his family with robots. Uh, again, it's one of those things where I feel like I should say, I love my family, I don't want to replace them with robots. But uh, uh, yeah, it's just this, this sort of cute little song about, uh, about that. That's it. <laughs> okay, so thanks for talking. Thank you. I ate the paste because I was hungry. I cried and ran out of the room. My mom and dad, they surely love me We don't always have a lot of food And all the other kids are assholes Making fun of my hand-me-down jeans Life would be a lot less hassle If I could just replace these pointless people with machines The perfect ticking of a clockwork family Everything happens right on time The perfect rhythm of a life that can be counted on to finally work out fine So much more reliably than mine My Uncle Tim is now in prison After seven years of being unemployed That would never happen to a robot They can only break and be repaired or be destroyed And they don't pass out on the sofa Buried in a pile of empty beers The absolute perfection of a buncular affection In a shiny little box of spinning gears Rhythm of a life that can be counted on to finally work out fine So much more reliably than mine 
There is dirt in every corner There's a sofa in the yard When everything is out of order Life is unpredictable and hard But there is peace out on the highway In the soft hissing rush of the machines Quietly gliding Never quite colliding, only fractions of a second in between. The perfect ticking of a clockwork family. Everything happens right on time. The perfect rhythm of a life that.